Now I'm even more worried about going to America because like the duvet and pillows are going to be all fucked up and different. I imagine like at a hotel they just bleach everything. So they do after I've been in. <laughs> User error sixty three. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. And we've got a Twitter. We've got a Twitter account. It is at user error show. So come and follow us. Now all the Jupes broadcasting shows have got their own Twitter, and we want ours to be the most popular. So yeah, follow us at user error show. I'll put a link in the show notes. So let's start with Foss rivalry. And I think this is something you brought up, Hopi. Mm-hmm. And your argument is that really there isn't much rivalry between Foss devs. It's mostly, if not all, from the users. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's um, For a long time, we see people battling it out on social media, on Reddit, or in forums, or IRC or wherever, arguing about which one of whatever they're arguing about is the best, whether it's text editors, Linux distributions, you know, toolkits, doesn't matter. People will find some kind of reason to argue about it. But it's it's pretty obvious that the people who are arguing are generally not the contributors to the project, but it's actually fans of the project. And it's really the fans who argue and stir up this bitter divisions between projects. And it just reminds me of like the 80s when you know there's bands in magazines and uh, you know are you one of these or one of those do you like this band or that band and were you a blur person or were you an oasis person the bands themselves didn't have any problem with each other it was the fans who picked sides and said the others were rubbish and it's exactly the same in technology people do exactly the same thing and it's just really tiresome that you know we get on well with kde people we get on well with gnome people elementary people the people who actually work on the projects, we all get on really, really well. But for some reason, the peanut gallery don't. And it's really frustrating. You know, it's funny, um, as you say this, just the other day, um, because, you know, we had that blog post about uh, we're going to start using uh, Flatpak for App Center. Um, uh, there was a significant, well, uh, not significant. There was a more than zero number of people that took the opportunity to then go shit on Snap. And so we were like, hey, that's not cool. Don't do that. We're not saying that Snap is bad. Like, use the tool that fits the job that you're doing. And that doesn't mean that everything else is a bad tool. Like, uh, you know, I'm going to use a hammer for my nails. That doesn't mean screwdrivers suck. Like, it's different things, you know, and it's okay to, to use different solutions and to have things that work for different kinds of people. I think Snap versus Flatpak is a prime example of this. I've seen a lot of well, shit talk, basically. Um, When I mentioned snaps in, I think it was the Fedora IRC, I just got jumped on straight away by someone (laughs) saying that snaps are terrible and insecure and flat packs way better. I'm just like, "Uh, okay, right, fine. But uh, I don't know, snaps seem to work pretty well for me and flat packs have never worked when I've tried them. I don't know if it's an XSCE thing or what, but in my experience, snaps are just more usable. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to start shitting on Flatpak. I'm sure that if they're integrated into GNOME, they work absolutely perfectly. 
Yeah, and I I think that anyone who's working with either of the technologies knows that it's more about how someone implements the technology than the technology itself. Like the way that you decide to do your sandboxing and the way that you decide to set up the permissions or things like that will affect the performance way more than like the technology itself does. And we know for a fact that there's tons of elementary OS users that use snaps and enjoy them. So I, I don't think that... Um, deciding that Flatpak is a good tool for our repository means that those users should feel like they should stop using Snaps. If that's what works for them and they like it, they should keep using those apps. Right. Can we have a very quick sidebar? Um, why didn't you go for both? Why did you go all in on Flatpak and not just kind of support both in the App Center? I think kind of the driving factor for a lot of these of like, why not both kind of things is that we want to create a really simple developer path. And it's like, this is what we recommend to do. Like all our documentation uses this programming language, this build system, this packaging system. There's just one straightforward path to submitting an application to App Center. And if you would like to distribute your app in this other way or use this other language or this other toolkit or whatever you want to do, like sideloading is a thing and you could totally do whatever, but in order to kind of enforce a really easy path for development and reviews and documentation and support and everything else like that, that it's better for us to just pick one thing and say, this is the thing we're endorsing. And we knew before uh, Cassidy published that blog post, you know, in the, in the Snap community, we knew that that was coming because we've been chatting to them about it on their Slack and they've come along to events. And we, you know, you can get a feel for whether someone's positive about something or whether it fits their requirements or doesn't fit their requirements. So we're already grown up about it. and We talk to each other and, you know, we understand how it doesn't fit their requirements. And that's fine. You know, it fits somebody else's requirements, but it doesn't fit theirs. That doesn't mean it should all be flushed down the toilet and everyone should be fired. And this is a terrible technology and nobody should use it at all. Because as Dan says, they all have their own niche. They all have their own uh, advantages and disadvantages. And that whole, you know, something is insecure or something is buggy. Sure, software has bugs. You know, file a bug, we'll get it fixed. Uh, you know, modulo the priority of all the other bugs that we've got to fix but you know it's i i, I do find it's is very much uh a, a people external to the project who don't realize that we all talk to each other and like you know people from our projects go to gnome events and we go to kde events and we talk almost daily to people who work on all these projects and people outside of that just don't realize and for some reason they build up this this whole bitter resentment between projects that just isn't there. It's really bizarre and really childish as well. It's funny, actually, at the last GNOME conference that we did, where it was about uh, developing, you know, free software applications and the different application stacks, we got up and did a talk about App Center and the publication process and why we made the decisions that uh, we made. And then um, Alex from KDE got up and started his talk by saying, okay, so here's why we did the exact opposite of all those things. <laughs> and it was kind of funny, but it was like, that's how things are sometimes. And it doesn't mean that either one is better. It just means that we have different ideas and the way that we express ourselves is, is different and we can still learn from each other and everybody's still interested in pursuing the same kinds of overarching goals and finding out like where are the overlap points that we can do things together. But... Are you seriously telling me, Popey, that there is no rivalry 
between Red Hat and Ubuntu in terms of the staff working for them. I and mean, clearly you cooperate where necessary and it's it's a friendly rivalry, but you must think that Ubuntu is better than Fedora, otherwise you'd be using Fedora. Sure. And and that's that's natural. You know, you you appreciate, you know, the products you work on. Uh, probably more so because you work on them and because there's a piece of you inside of them than maybe you do appreciate somebody else's products. But that's no different than somebody who works for BMW enjoying BMWs more than they enjoy Audis. Like, it might be that in a past job, they worked at Audi and they really liked working on Audis and they really enjoyed driving them. But now they work at BMW. So it's not unreasonable that you're being paid for, you know, a third of your life uh, every day to work on a thing for you to outwardly be passionate about the thing that you're working on it would be daft for me to get paid for a third of my life and spend all day talking about somebody else's products that would just be lunacy um, and in terms of internal stuff i'm sure every company has uh, internal rivalries and like oh look what those guys are doing we should totally steal that or oh they stole that thing from us but outwardly publicly you don't do that. You don't go around shitting on each other's product products. And that's something that I think has come from, in canonical at least, from the Ubuntu Code of Conduct. For many years, you'll you'll have if you look back, there are some exceptions to what I'm about to say, but in general, canonical employees and people who are in the Ubuntu community don't shit on other people's products. They don't go around saying how terrible Fedora is or how, you know, KDE is rubbish or the, whatever the alternative is to whatever product is they're passionate about. People in the Ubuntu community don't generally do that. Now, obviously there are outliers and people who don't appreciate how, how the code of conduct works and how that, you, you know, your behavior um, represents the project and represents the company. So you'll often see things like the Ubuntu Twitter account saying congratulations to competing products when they make, when they do a software release, because we're all working on free software. And while we are in inverted commas competition with each other, outwardly, we can all be friends because we're all working on free software and, you know, everyone benefits from all of this. So yeah, sure. Just like anyone else, I, I think the products that I work on are better than other people's, but that would be madness not to think that. So essentially what you're saying is it's fine to think that other people's stuff is shit as long as you don't ever say it publicly. <laughs> I think tact is the, uh, is the key word here. <laughs> Diplomacy. Okay, hashtag ask error. How often do you clean your tech and with what tools? So, Dan... How often do you clean your various tech devices? I guess when they're dirty, I, I don't keep track on like a schedule or anything like that. But I do hate dust. Dust bugs me. So if it counts as a tech device, I dust the television constantly or like vacuum um, pet hair out of the sound bar cover because that attracts dust for some reason or like I'll wipe down my keyboard, you know, with like an alcohol wipe kind of thing, because that always attracts dust and oil and whatever's on your fingers. And so regularly, frequently, whenever, whenever things look dusty or dirty, I suppose. What about you, Poppy? Yeah, I, I was just looking around while Dan was talking, I was looking around the room thinking, how dirty and cruddy are my devices? Um, yeah, I actually bought some, um, some stuff to clean up some old ThinkPads. I bought some, um, 
some of these magic eraser things to get rid of some of the marks on the lid to clean them up. And ever since I've done that, I feel I want to keep them even cleaner. And I keep them the old ones inside a plastic box so they don't get dusty. But the ones I use that are out on my desk, yeah, they collect dust and fingerprints and stuff. And I try and keep them clean. I've got some wipes. And uh, one of my colleagues, we were on our hangout, and he noticed over my shoulder on the desk behind me, he was like, hey, Alan, uh, you planning on getting up to anything in that office? And I was like, why? He goes, oh, there's a roll of toilet roll on the desk behind you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, that's for cleaning laptops. <laughs> really? Um, so, yeah, there's um, yeah, there's all kinds of cleaning products all around me, like wipes and um, that, uh, al- what's not alcohol, it's some kind of um, spray that evaporates very quickly. It's really good for cleaning the lids of laptops and stuff. So I do not obsessively clean stuff, but, you know, relatively. I think it's relatively clean in here, roughly. I never clean anything. Um, I occasionally hoover out my desktop maybe once a year, and there's all dust bunnies in it and stuff. But otherwise, no, I just never get around to it. I'm quite a messy person generally. And um, I've occasionally tried to clean laptop screens, but I just never know. I'm, I'm too tight to buy proper alcohol wipes so i just try and get a bit of loo roll and a bit of soapy water or whatever and it just never seems to quite work it gets the bits of like food off it that i've managed to somehow get on there but um no otherwise i'm just too lazy to clean things i'm afraid there seems to be an axiom that we should teach all children to code it's actually part of the national curriculum in this country I'm sure your kids have been taught a bit of that, Popey. Yep. And so the question is, is that right? Should all kids be taught to code? Or should we teach them more useful things like cooking, for example, instead? It kind of seems like insofar as we should encourage children to develop problem-solving skills, then yes, that sounds like a good idea is alongside like teaching them math, right? But as far as like practical life skills, anything they learn is going to be completely irrelevant as soon as they graduate, right? So um, maybe some like more long-term skills like cooking can be both useful for problem solving and useful for feeding themselves. Well, so you're saying if you teach them Python now, then it's by the time they go through university and everything, it's going to be irrelevant. It's like all the frameworks and everything change, right? Like if you went to university today and took a course on web development and then tried to build a website immediately after finishing that course, you would be so out of date and have no idea what you were doing. Oh, because the teachers are teaching you stuff from 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah, it's like whenever that curriculum got approved and then all the time it took for that to get approved and print books and all these things and then they taught you the course and then by the time you're out, it's like, you know, what? Who who writes websites like that anymore? Don't you know that, you know, CSS Grid exists now? Whatever the new fancy thing is. But if you taught them the fundamentals of coding uh, but not the specifics necessarily, that might be the way to go then. Sure, like um, something that's more like how do you organize thoughts in a logical manner, like logic gates and things like that, or just uh, the general ideas of, oh, this is what a conditional statement is, and this is what a loop is, and uh, this is what it means to like organize things in an object-oriented way, or like larger concepts like that are probably more broadly useful 
um, as far as coding goes, but how specific can you really get before it becomes like a total waste of time to teach kids to code specific things? And are those skills impossible to develop in other disciplines? Is it impossible to teach people how to think about like conditional statements when they're doing like, oh, if I add salt to my eggs, like, you know, I don't know. I'm inclined to agree that I think the important thing is the logical thinking and the analytical thinking and problem solving. That's that's more useful than the specific framework or tools that are used. And I know my kids started off with Scratch a few years ago, and that taught them the fundamentals. And I, I made a game with my daughter that was pretty simple, but good fun. And she won a prize for that. I think I mostly wrote that actually. Um, but she really enjoyed it. And she understood as we were going through, she understood how she was doing it. But it's not something that interests her. So I don't think it's something that's super valuable. So it might come back later when she's doing A-levels or something. There might be a component that relies on some of the fundamentals she's learned in those classes. And I think that to have that foundation, that's good. I don't think she's ever going to be a computer programmer, I, but you never know, you know, because she's only 15 and, you know, nobody knows what they're going to do when they're 15. Um, but my son might, he might pick that stuff up and because he's that kind of person and he's a bit nerdy and, you know, likes that kind of stuff. Um, but I think, I think I'm inclined to agree that there are other skills that I wish they would learn at school that I think in the past, like in my grandmother's age, she would have taught them. Like she would have taught her kids, not just things like cooking and housework and stuff like that, but like doing your taxes. Like nobody teaches you that. Nobody teaches you about how taxes work or how the parliamentary system works and how, you know, why your vote is important and stuff like that. I mean, some of that gets taught at school, but not in any great depth. But I think those kind of skills you need, largely irrelevant of what role you're going to play in life, you know, things that keep you alive and things that enable you to function as an adult seem just as important as being able to construct a for loop or understanding what a subroutine is. They, In fact, they seem way more important. You know what's probably really important that we don't ever really talk about is like sanitization and especially in regards to food. Like why don't kids go through a food safety class? It's crazy how little people know about food safety and this is stuff that could kill you. Like not knowing how long that you can keep meat outside the refrigerator. Everybody should know that. Yeah, but they're little things you'd pick up. Like if you were – um if you were inclined to teach your kids how to cook on a regular basis, um, then yeah, I think, I think they would pick up that kind of stuff, that knowledge, like, you know, oh, put some cling film over the steak and put it back in the fridge because you can't leave it out for too long. You know, they would just pick that stuff up as you go if you were teaching them, uh, to cook stuff. It's funny because Sophie came in yesterday. She was bored and she said, oh, I want to make something for lunch. Can I make egg fried rice? And I was like, yeah, sure. Go for it. Have you ever made it before? No, but I'll figure it out. And she went and made some egg fried rice for me and Sam for lunch, which was really nice. Um, so she has some of those skills and she's picked some up from just watching YouTube videos. She does do cookery at school, but it's only like an hour or two every, every week or so 
for only like one term. She didn't do it for a, an extended period of time. And they didn't teach her every possible dish. Certainly, she never learned how to make egg fried rice. I appreciate that's not a hard dish to do. But, you know, she figured it out. Um, and I think those are skills that, that should be focused on. I'd be way more happy if she learned how to cook half a dozen really good dishes and know what ingredients to use to give her a healthy um, spread of, you know, different food groups than learning how to write in Python, to be honest. But what about the inevitable future that is automation? I know we've clashed slightly on this before, but if a good portion of the jobs, let's say, that are available are programming machines, then surely it makes sense to teach kids how to do programming now, even if they're not particularly interested in it. But if they learn it, then they'll be able to have a decent job and just pay someone to cook for them or, and, and you know do all the other little things, the, the life stuff that you talked about. Because it's no good knowing how to cook and do your taxes if you haven't got a job, if the robots have put you out of work. Uh, I'm not convinced. Like, whether you have a job or not, you still got to eat. And whether you've got a job or not, you just got to do a tax return every year. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, they're, they're pretty fundamental things that everyone needs. And besides, she's not, I think this is the misnomer that everyone needs to learn these skills. Like, she is a very artistic person. I could see her doing something like photography or some artistic endeavor. She's not the kind of person who's, I mean, it could be she does game design, who knows, but I don't, I don't envisage her doing programming. Like whatever automation does to decimate the workforce, I would think she's more likely to be doing something artistic and creative, which may require computing skills. I just don't know. I think as like automation becomes more and more a part of our reality as well, though, like programming becomes a smaller and smaller part of it because it's really inefficient, um, right? Like it, it's much more efficient to have a robot that can replicate movements or that you can walk through something and kind of teach it how to operate. And then it just remembers how to do that thing than it is to have a programmer sit there, you know, with an engineer and they measure out, you know, okay, I've got my laser and find out what angle does the arm need to move, you know, when you could just have, you know, Joe, whoever, who's never written a line of code in his life go okay robot arm here you start here okay press the button remembers that move the robot arm here okay and there figure out the in between you know and then he's programmed the robot without ever writing a line of code yeah but someone needs to program that in the first place i suppose but that i think is a small set of jobs i don't think that's ever going to be the majority of the workforce is, is writing writing all this code. I think the majority of any remaining workforce that has to do with automation is going to be manually showing the robot, teaching it like you would some other worker. Yeah. But there's the maintenance as well, because as we know, all software has bugs and things just go wrong. So there will be some jobs doing that and you will have to understand how it works to be able to fix it but if everything's based on like neural nets and things like that you know no human can possibly comprehend the how the code works anyway right so it kind of seems like knowing how the code works is kind of a concept that it's going to go away i think in a class of 20 children who graduate i would 
envisage a small proportion of them will be building technology for the rest. Not that in a class of 20 kids, 18 of them will be building software and two of them will be teaching the robots. It seems that seems the wrong way around. I, I feel like more of them will be users than the programmers. It seems like in an automated future that the economy would trend towards entertainment, right? Like it would be more people who are uh, bloggers and journalists and actors and like whatever kind of things that are uniquely human that are more expressionist than um, something. Everything else could be automated, but it'd be hard to automate a travel blogger. Well, and as Mark from the Ubuntu podcast once said, you can't automate Joe, so I'll be all right. <laughs> okay, hashtag ask error. Are all VPN providers as shady as they seem? <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know, there are some that support the FOSS ecosystem and, you know, support a bunch of projects and everything, but there just seems to be something inherently dodgy about VPN providers. Am I imagining this? I can see why you think that. Is it? Does it come from, is it born out of the fact that people often use them for nefarious purposes? Like, um, I don't know, uh, software that can decrypt like encrypted movies or software that can decrypt encrypted CDs. I don't know. They feel like David and Goliath. VPNs, I don't know, they've got this, there's something about VPN software that, that in the past, they, if, if you don't, if you think aside from all the, um, Arab Spring and Edward Snowden style VPNs and just think of people bypassing geolocked content controls in order to pirate films, <laughs> like, does that make them, because they're provided, they're enabling that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are VPNs that are very useful, like getting into your work network or getting into your own network from home. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, yeah, the kind of thing where you want to watch Netflix from America because they've got different content or whatever, or you want to just torrent a load of stuff or get on blocked piracy sites or whatever. But why why is the VPN dodgy when the... It's act, you could argue it's the evil content delivery network that's stopping you from accessing things just because of the accident of where you were born and where you happen to live. It's not your fault that Paramount won't let you watch that program. Well, no, I totally agree with that, right? That um, your region locking and stuff is just bullshit. In an age of globalization, it makes no sense and just leads to stuff like piracy. But... I think what it is, is because people, okay, because a lot of people, shall I say, use VPNs to do dodgy things, those providers have to look the other way on that, and therefore they just seem like dodgy organizations. And they sort of claim to not keep logs and stuff like that, whereas I just get this feeling that if they are going to look the other way on, on piracy and stuff, then why should I trust them? to be private with my data and stuff. And it's, this is, I have no evidence for this. This is just a pure feeling. And I was just wondering if you guys had that same feeling. So um, Cloudflare's 1111 recently launched an app, right? And um, 
it's all marketed with all these really bright colors and white and it's like artsy and fun and they're advertising that they're going to release this thing warp right and warp is going to um, allow you to protect yourself from spying from internet service providers and all these things and oh by the way it's a vpn yeah it kind of feels like doing stuff that way doesn't really seem shady like the marketing around it is like you're Privacy is under attack. Everybody wants to spy on you. Everybody wants to target ads to you. As a consumer, you have the right to be able to just do your shopping without someone constantly over your shoulder. So here's a thing. Here's a product. You know, the messaging, I think, is less like here's how to, you know, get away with stuff or, you know, it's less like hackery, you know, ah, we're going to go underground. And it's more like, you should be allowed to be out in the open and not worry about it. Don't even get me started on Cloudflare. I don't understand why people seem to trust them so much. First, they came for our websites and like said, yeah, put this in front of your website. You'll save a load of money on bandwidth and you know the caching and all that, and it's really convenient, and a bunch of people do that. And then they came for DNS and now they're coming for VPNs as well. It just the the question is, what's their game? It doesn't seem like a a viable business model to just offer sort of premium services on top of that to me. It must cost them so much money to give all this stuff away for free, and then you into the Google and Facebook type models. And so there just seems to be something about Cloudflare that I don't trust. And I again, I have no evidence. This is just a gut feeling. It does seem very odd, doesn't it, that there is no price associated and it does make you wonder how are they paying for this? And if it's not straightforward how something is paid for, that is concerning. But as far as like regular public perception, I think that the way that it's marketed in in that way kind of makes it seem more trustworthy when it's just like, hey, we're going to make your internet faster and protect you. Then like, this is how you're going to subvert some stuff. I I think this has changed. Like if we'd had this conversation, say five years ago or before before WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden, we would probably have been, uh, I, I think that may be where Joe, your prejudices or whatever against vpns and vpn providers comes from is pre snowden pre the the good news of vpns and how it can protect you it was more here you can work around these evil corporations and their horrible geo locks and here's a way that you can pretend to be in another location so that you could get access to some you know chat room that you've been blocked in or you know there's various things that you could do that would annoy someone else whereas when you're using a VPN in the modern age, generally you're not doing it in order to upset someone else. You're doing it to benefit yourself. You're doing it to give yourself confidence and security in your connection. And I think because your opinion is tarnished by what your opinion of VPNs was five years ago, that's that's retained. If you could reset and just look at what VPNs are now and why people use them, I think maybe you're your opinion might be slightly different, maybe. Yeah, you might be right. That said, (laughs) 
I do, I do kind of agree with you that some of them do feel a bit dodgy. <laughs> and uh, I'm always looking with a like side eye at them because I, I never know whether you, you can you trust them because you're shoving all your traffic through them. And, yeah. you know, if you all, if you connect to a VPN and you tell it, I want all my traffic to go through this hole and pop up in a data center. I've got no idea where that data center is. I don't know who are the people who can sit there and run, um, you know, TCP dump on that connection or whatever. I've got no idea who that is. And I, I noticed that I think other people are thinking the same thing. And that's why they've started changing their messages. I was watching a, um, YouTube video that was sponsored by a VPN provider just yesterday and the guy held up an SSD in his hand and, uh, dim a memory dim in his hand to illustrate the difference between um volatile storage and non-volatile storage and he was talking about how this particular vpn provider the sponsor of his show used um all the compute resources in ram so in the event that the computer's turned off bam all the logs are gone all the tracking all the information is gone it's not logged on disk anywhere everything runs in ram and so they are starting to cotton on to this whole thing that you've got to be super 100% trustworthy for people to want to use your service. I've never signed up for a VPN. I'm, I'm thankful that my employer provides me with one and I can use that if I want to appear like I'm in the US or appear like I'm in the UK. But yeah, I, I would have to do a lot of research into this because I would worry about all my traffic going through that pipe. All property is theft, goes the saying. And if you really think about it, it's kind of true, really. If you think about where you are right now, someone owns that. Maybe you're in your house and you own it, or maybe the bank owns it or whatever. But you bought it from someone and they bought it from someone. But ultimately, essentially, someone killed someone and said, that's mine. And so the whole concept of ownership of pretty much anything is immoral isn't it? Uh, as much as I am a godless pinko kami, I have to think that without any concept of property, it's really hard to establish things like jurisdiction and law and create any kind of enforceable order, right? Without being able to say that even like as a group of people, we collectively own this area and therefore we can enforce order within it. Um, you know, these are the things that we've defined are useful for the group. Don't do those things. Uh, if you, if you don't have any sort of ownership, even group ownership, then it kind of seems like you're unable to say, well, um, you know, whose, whose right is it to say what you can't do on your own property, right? Even if that includes things like murder, it's your property. I can't take away your personal freedom in your personal space. Well, you can with weapons. And that's, that's how it works is you're okay until someone comes along with a bigger stick. And when they come along with a bigger stick and push you off that land, they now own that land and you can fuck off somewhere else. Um, and whatever other resources are on that land is theirs now. And then someone else comes along with a gun and pushes them off the land. And then someone else comes along with an army with lots of guns and pushes them off the land. And it just perpetuates. And it, it does feel like 
we have gone down a horrible path and drawing these arbitrary lines on maps that say this bit is mine and that bit's yours, or rather this bit's mine and it's not yours, is unfortunate because it's only, for a lot of it, it's only by chance that you have the ability to draw that line around that piece of land. It's You didn't necessarily earn it, it's just because you were the child of your parents and your parents happened to have a piece of land there and happened to have the resources to give to you and bring you up so that you could have a piece of land nearby. There are plenty of people who are born with nothing. I mean, everyone is arguably born with nothing, but there are people who are born with nothing and have no hope of ever getting anything. And what makes them have less of a right to have a plot of land with a line drawn around it than you? You weren't special. The atoms that made you are the same kind of atoms that made them. They're no different. And it does, it does make me feel that the human race, unfortunately, because we, we are the way we are, we've gone down a wrong path and we've, we've got to the point where there is no turning back. Short of detonating a nuke and resetting back to the Stone Age. But even then it would happen. Like, this is my cave. It's raining. Fuck off. Go out in the rain. This is mine. And if you don't get out, I'll throw a rock at you. You know, it's, it's human nature to protect and look after the bit that you're sat on and defend it from attackers, unfortunately. That's kind of how I feel, really, that if you really start thinking about it, like where I live, uh, I actually know the story of, um, well, going back at least uh, a couple of hundred years. And at some point, some guy was quite friendly with the king, I think, and just got given a whole bunch of land. And his descendants still own big chunks of it and earn loads of money from rent and everything. And you just think, well, he was just given that because he was friends with the king and the king was only the king because he or his uh, relatives, his ancestors killed someone. And it just all comes back to violence. And the the thing you said about the sticks and the guns, probably, and the swords. And the thing is that like, when you really think about it, it, that's true. But then what alternative is there? Unless you want to go full anarchist or whatever, it just seems that, Dan, you're right, that they, if you're going to have an orderly society, then you just have to do it this way. If we could turn the clock back, what could we do differently? Well, part of the problem is people have different needs and you know there are a lot of people and you could have a bunch of people who have similar needs and have a similar frame of mind and could form a collective and live in a, in a part of the world. And when more people come along and say, hey, that's a friendly place to live. I, I like that. I like the way you structure your civilization. I'd like to come and live here. But at some point, you're going to run out of resources to support the number of people that you've got in that plot. And either the plot grows or you kick people out. Like, which is it? And if the plot grows, you're going to encroach on someone else's plot. And that's just the way it works. Because we naturally, as human beings, we procreate and we make more of them. And we need resources to keep those people alive. I I feel it's semi-inevitable. It would be lovely if we could like do a hard reset. Maybe we'll do that on Mars, but that's a very, very elite set of people who are going to be able to live that dream on a different planet. I don't know that we ever could. It, it, when, you, when you talk about like where the land was, it just reminds me of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when Arthur Dent gets thrown 
back millions of years into the past and he's living in Islington millions of years ago. It's a cave and trees and that's all he's got. But that's all his because he is one of two people on that entire planet and he can have as much space as he wants. But if there were more people, they'd all want a bit of space. It's, it's, it's unfortunately inevitable. There's no, I think the only way you could do it is have a population cap, like a, a hard limit of how many human beings there could be in a physical space. And when you hit that limit, you got to whatever, kill people off or stop people reproducing. I don't know how you do it, but I think that's the only way you do it is because otherwise you run rampant looking for resources all the time. I think Alan's right because we kind of did have a reset, didn't we? When everybody started trying to colonize the Americas and it was like, there's so much land that no one could ever possibly use these resources. But how long did it take before people started drawing property lines and, you know, plots of land and establishing, you know, the city here and these things and ownership and kicking people out of where they live and horrible massacres and genocide. And, you know, it seems like it didn't really take long for property to be quite enforced, even with what people thought was a new entire world. I was thinking about the American situation because that wasn't even that long ago, was it? It was only a few hundred years. And uh, here we are in that same situation where every possible bit of land is owned by someone. So yeah, I suppose that was the reset. And the next one probably will be Mars or the moon or something. It's one of those things that depresses me now and then when I think about, you know, friends who don't have the resources to be able to buy a plot of land and you know, they don't want a huge plot of land, they just want somewhere to live. That's a reasonable thing, isn't it? For people to want to have somewhere to live and, you know, thrive. Uh, it's it's really sad. I, I realise we're going to get emails from people telling us to all give up our property to everyone else, but, you know, I'm just like everyone else. I want somewhere to live as well. It does seem like that a more utopian future would include some kind of constitutional right to a place to live, right? That somehow as a society, we should decide that, yeah, everybody deserves a place to live and we're going to figure out how to at least let you have somewhere to sleep. Right. But then you get the people who disagree with that and they'll draw a line around their bit <laughs> and then that bit will grow and they'll encroach on you because you're weaker and they've got bigger guns. It will never end because people have different perspectives and they follow a different leader and they've decided on a new religion and they've decided on a new way of thinking. It, I think it's one of those things that's just inevitable. If we did a hard reset and just like all the people were still alive, but just like reduced the entire planet to rubble and said, all right, reset. It's a new world, like a new day on a new game server. Off you go and see what happens. People would coalesce in different groups. They'd be tribal. They'd draw lines on maps and it would just happen all over again. I think it's in our nature. Mm -hmm.